This is Takeaway Only, a podcast about the hospitality industry in crisis. I'm Howie Kahn, and these are the stories of the people who take care of you. Today's guest is Dan Giusti. Dan and his organization, Brigade, have taken on the task of reforming school lunches. Their work now is more critical than ever. Hear how Brigade organizes, who they are feeding, and what the government must do to help. We're back tomorrow with an all-new guest. Please hit subscribe so you don't miss it. Stay tuned now for Dan. My guest today on Takeaway Only is Dan Giusti of Brigade. Brigade. Dan, hi. Hi. How are you, Howie? I said Brigade twice because I, I think it's a very important organization and, and it's a growing one. It's helping to feed a lot of people uh, starting in school districts uh, all over the East Coast and now in senior citizen communities a- as well. I want to go back in time a little bit to when you guys knew COVID-19 was going to shut down the schools. Tell me about how you changed over your feeding operation to make sure your kids would eat if they weren't in school. Yeah, I think it was, it was like everyone else. I think people kind of got this feeling, it, you know, it was inevitable that schools were going to shut down. And um, so I think it was like basically the week before it was happening, it was like, all right, well, what is this going to look like? And we had more or less a weekend to figure out kind of how we would change things. And, uh, you, you know, we, we made some, some, some changes. We knew that kids weren't going to be showing up to school. We knew that. That's about all we knew. But how, how the food was going to get to people, that's, we weren't sure about. So ultimately, in the, in the beginning, people were still showing up to schools um, to, pick it, to pick the food up. Um, which we found was not ideal, of course, because you just have loads of people showing up to pick up food. So initially, um, again, there wasn't much time to to make many changes. Um, since then, basically every week, you continue to make changes to understand what needs to happen to both. Um, the, the thing, and I, I would say, I guess, to kind of step back, I think that the biggest change we needed to make was really how to limit contact between people on the outside and our staff, and then generally the amount of time people were working. I think that's something that people don't understand. And a lot of, um, there's a lot of talk about it in terms of food service. And obviously as we talk talk about restaurants, uh, you know, starting to get up and running here soon enough, like, I don't know, like things change a lot. Like basically it came down to how can we feed as many people as possible with as little people as, but with as least amount of people as possible. And the thing is like, obviously you want to keep people working and you want people to get paid, but at the same time, like for what it's worth, most of the people working in school districts, the employees are, you know, maybe in their sixties. A lot of them have preexisting health conditions. I mean, there's stories all across the country of, of food service people passing away because of this. So in the beginning, that's kind of where the focus was of how can we limit the amount of time people are working. So that's then changing our menu. You know, during the course of the year, I think usually we would never argue that we have the luxury of anything because it's a difficult space to work in. But really, we do have the luxury of working within those constraints to make the food as good as possible and really trying to tackle that. During this, it became this idea of like, is that a little foolish? trying to push the envelope on... I, I want to interrupt you just for one second to clarify that by luxury, Dan means he has $2.72 with which to make every plate of school food the best it could be. So, well, that's... The, so I'm not sure where that number came from, but we have... Uh, for food, we have $1.25. 
It came from uh, the Universal Schools Meals Program uh, Act bill from uh, Senators uh, Sanders and Congresswoman Omar. So I'm not yeah I'm not sure what uh, maybe it's a fed- maybe that's a federal average. Yeah, I'm not sure what that number is in reference to. So basically, what it comes down to is we have three dollars and forty one cents to produce lunch, and that's for everything. That's for food. That's for labor. That's for maintenance. Whatever. Um, we have a dollar twenty five for food. So yeah, again. But we would still consider that within a dollar twenty-five, we have our systems in place. We have figured out different things. We have recipes, all this stuff, so we can push the limit within that. And then when we got to the, and what I mean by push the limit too is like cooking from scratch and trying to do different things, bringing new products. But during this, it was like, do we still cook from scratch? Is that foolish again? Because you know, the more we cook from scratch, the more people have to work, the more people are around, the more people get exposed. So. Um, we decided on doing a little bit of both. Um, so we're offering breakfast and lunch. Breakfast is not from scratch. It's more of like a pre-packed thing. Lunch is from scratch. Uh, we decided that cooking meals every day is, is not good. We decided that people picking up meals is not good. Um, so we started to distribute meals. So meals get distributed on school buses. Uh, we decided that distributing meals every day is not only not efficient, but it's also not good to have people coming out of their house every day. Um, so we're only delivering twice a week. So for example, in New London, where we're only catering to like 1,400 people or so, on a Friday, about 10,000 meals get delivered because you're delivering enough meals for breakfast and lunch for four days to get them through the weekend and into the following week. So it's a big undertaking to make sure you have all these meals prepared. Uh, the meals that we are preparing from scratch have to get frozen down. So it's another step. And again, that might not sound like a lot, but when you're freezing down a couple thousand meals when you're not used to doing that and packing them, this is something that people forget about. So you already have this very low reimbursement rate, and that's the amount of money the government pays for us to produce these meals. But now all of a sudden you're tacking on all this packaging, all this extra labor to deliver the meals, and it's really not sufficient. Um, so a lot of school districts are, are facing crisis now um, because once they get into the school year, they have depleted all the money that they had saved up just to do all this. So it's, it's a tough situation. So feeding kids will eat up any surplus that was, what, that was there. Yeah. I mean, most school districts didn't even have a surplus. And the ones that did, it's gone. Um, the thing that I think people don't realize was, well, some people do if they're involved in like local politics is that... You know, when you have a school food service program, it's it's kind of self-sustaining with its own budget with this federal reimbursement. And then some school districts choose to subsidize that and help the food service program. In most school districts, they don't. So during this, some have chosen to help, some haven't. I think at, by this point, most have had to step in the general school district and say, hey, we're going to help you here because we need to make sure kids get fed. In fact, I've never heard the conversation of school food kind of so prominent within school districts uh, as I have now because they realize that it's such a pressing issue, um, which has been good. When you talk about the 1,400 kids number, is that the number of kids in, in a district in one middle school? What are we talking about? Yeah, so 1,400 kids in New, so New London is a school district. So that's one school district that I'm just using as an example. New London is only, um, I think it's about 30, 32, 3,300 kids. Um, in total during the course of the year. So you have 1,400 of them who are actually eating now on a daily basis, which is kind of crazy um, to think because that's basically saying that you have 1,400 kids that um, are doing anything they can or their families are to get this free food. And that's kind of 
that is that is a much higher percentage than we would say. I think the only thing comparable to this situation now is say the summer. We do a summer feeding program because when you have kids come out to get food because they need it. Um, this is probably like double that that we're seeing right now. And that's almost half the district. It is that you have kids coming out that they need they're they're depending on this food. And obviously we've seen that number has increased. Um, and I'm using New London as an example primarily. We are in other districts, but New London is the place where, first of all, it's very small, um, but we are kind of overseeing the whole district. It's, it's much easier to give you all the information. Um, but it, it's, it's par for the course from around the country. You can see it happening everywhere as we have conversations with people. Have, have you been approached? I know when you drop off the meals, the meals are for the, the kids, but I would imagine that the families in which they live also have their own issues with food insecurity. So say you're, you're dropping off, you know, meals for the, the, the kids, but have you been hearing that whole families are sharing these, these packages? Have you been approached to make meals for the community at large? Yeah. I mean, not to get in the weeds too much, but basically this, this program. So everybody scrambled to get this going. So when this whole thing happened in school uh, was let out, the USDA basically said, okay, we're going to, we're going to basically mimic what we do during summer. So, uh, but we're going to change some of the rules. So one of the main rules during summer feeding is that only kids under the age of 18 can get these meals. They have to be present and they have to eat the meal on site. So obviously they waive the whole rule of eating on site. They don't want people eating on site. They also waive the rule as to who can pick up the meals. So adults go and pick up the meals. So, you know, in, in haste, they put this program together and they said, okay, well, anybody can come pick up the meal. But they also said that they're not going to reimburse meals that are not for people over the age of 18. There's really no way to hold anyone accountable. So surely a lot of adults are eating these meals. In New London, the school district has not said these meals are for anyone over the age of 18. In New York City, for example, they're giving meals to anyone who comes. There, there are 400 open sites in New York City, and anyone who shows up can get a meal, and they are going to get reimbursed for that. I don't know by who. Um, they have to secure that money maybe either by the city, by the state. or In my opinion, that's the right thing to do to just give meals to whoever is coming to get them. Um, but you need somebody to pay for it. And in a small school district like New London, they can't just say, we're going to give the money out and figure it out later. Obviously, New York City can figure it out. They have access to a variety of, of funding. Um, but yeah, surely adults are eating the meals at home. And it's like at this point, anyone who needs food, if, if, if that's what they need, then that's what they should get. You know? Have you guys talked about what happens in the fall if school doesn't open? Sure. I mean, those conversations are, are pretty um, heated right now. And as we are involved in multiple school districts, it's really interesting to hear the different strategies as to what school will look like if it reopens. Um, I also have people on my team who have kids and they're like, I'm not sending my kid back to school in this current situation until there's a vaccine because of the planning that we're hearing about. But yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because like I said, a lot of our work I never thought of our work as, again, I use this term luxury, but maybe extraneous in the sense that like we work with school districts to make their food better. We work with existing teams to train them to improve the quality of the food. But in this current circumstance, it's like school districts, when they get up and running in September, August, it's, it's going to be nothing but just trying to stay afloat and keep people safe. So like I feel that the work that we typically do 
has become extraneous for the time being. Like we need to go into a mode of just helping school districts strategize how to do this well and keep people safe. It can't be a conversation about, well, we're going to like try this new recipe today. Like it's just, there's no, there's not going to be room for that. You know, unfortunately there's not. And so I've been thinking, I mean, I've been racking my brain since this whole thing started. Like how do, the whole point of starting brigade was to help people. And like, I feel like, again, in this circumstance, our work has almost become extraneous. We need to be even more based in practicality than we were before. And just like, how can we help people just do what they need to do uh, come school reopening because you know there's plans but I'll tell you what these plans do not seem I mean to expect to expect school administrators to just have kids come back to school in September and manage this it's crazy I mean honestly it's crazy you work across multiple states which is an interesting point of view to have right yep. now so you're inside in, in Richmond Virginia and in New London and in in the Bronx and in Southampton too which is a much different kind of school district than sure. both the you know the Bronx and New London how do you see, you know, the regional responses differ? Are they different? Are they similarly minded in terms of the rooted in safety? Are certain districts more gung-ho about opening? I mean, I think everybody, I think the thing that's definitely consistent is everybody wants to do the right thing. Um, but I think one thing we've seen since the response, before even thinking about opening in September, like the decision to close, uh, for example, like, New York City might be the most savviest and they might have the most funding and the most high profile, but they were the last ones to close and they held out to the end. And I think that was a bad decision, to be honest. Um, but, you know, all the school districts seemingly are trying to do the right thing. But does, does that mean that they're capable of doing the right thing? Does that mean that they have the funding to do the right thing? I mean, when we talk about like having PPE for these, these employees who are working in cafeterias it wasn't there. You know what I mean? Like this kind of stuff, like they were just serving food and like people were just there. So in terms of the response, like, you know, it, it I think it, it really has to depend on um, the leadership, the individual leadership in a school district. Like you could have one district next to another school district in the same state really comes down to like the superintendent and their kind of, um, you know, how aggressive they're going to be to make sure kids are safe and staff is safe. I mean, everybody talks about kids being safe, but if I'm a teacher, I'm like, I got, you know, like, I, I, I don't know, I forget what the statistics are, but like several people who worked in the DOE in New York City passed away. Yeah, and you were also saying that, you know, many of, of your um, food service workers in, in New London, and I would imagine in the Bronx and Virginia Everywhere. too, are over yeah. the age of 50. And a lot of them have pre-existing health conditions. Like it is not, you know, and these are also people who like, I hate to say it, it's a terrible cycle, but they're not making much money. They're also, they're, they're taking on minimum wage in many cases. And, and, you know, they are, they are incentivized to work. So they're working, but they shouldn't be because they're really not in a great condition to do so. So it's a, it's a really, it's a really challenging thing. And, and once school begins, see now the only thing that's happening is food service. So like there is a little more focus on them to say like, okay, they're there. Let's make sure things are right. Things are good. But once school starts, the, you know, the attention will be drawn elsewhere. And again, it's like, will these people be set up for success? And I'm talking about places where we are. In the places that we're, where we are present, these people are forward thinking when it comes to food. That's why they brought us in. There's a lot of school, and they also have some kind of budget to bring us in. There's a lot of school districts that they're not really thinking about food service. 
they don't have the budgets to think about it. So like, you know, we've seen plenty of photos and plenty of pictures where it's like, it's not a good setup. You got a lot of people working in small kitchens, no PPE, nothing. It's like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen in the fall when there's like a resurgence of this thing and they're going to be working every day can become very problematic, you know? How long did it take for, for your team to get proper PPE where, where they are? I assume they have it now. I don't even know if I should assume that. No, I mean, I don't think like in the different places where we are, like to say proper PPE is probably exaggeration. Um, like in different places, taking different initiatives. It was also very spotty. Like some places where we were, the health department like provided it once and then you didn't see it again. Um, in some districts we're in, they received K95 and N95 masks. Like, okay, that's great. Um, in New London, they had masks made by someone locally. Um, but for a while, it was kind of just like, you know, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. And, you know, obviously this was also direction from, from, from the top. No one really knew what we should be doing. It was like, one day they actually said don't wear masks and the next day it's like you have to wear masks so i think that was very confusing but but in terms of proper ppe no we just, no one has it i mean and that's the thing that i know restaurants are tackling now the idea if you're going to reopen i mean all these food service operations that are, are that are in business now don't have proper ppe they don't all have the proper masks i mean ideally they're having masks that are reused you know that are disposable after one one day they don't um is that going to happen? Is there, are there plans for that? There's not a lot of consistent yeah. federal leadership on, on any matter. So I, I no. doubt it's very high on the list. I mean, it's no. going to come down to people like you to make sure those things are, are there. But what I will say, though, I agree. I agree there's not great federal leadership with that. But I also agree that I would also say that there's a lot of folks that I feel like are being very cavalier about this. And like I, you know, my conversations don't go much outside of, food service, whether it's in schools, senior centers, or restaurants. And a lot of my peers have restaurants or work in restaurants. And I feel like there's a lot of folks who, when they have the opportunity to open, they're just going to reopen. And they're not thinking about like, where everyone needs to wear masks in the kitchen. And well, what does that mean? If we're all wearing masks in the kitchen, can we taste the food? No, you can't. It's going to change everything. And I feel like there's, there's almost like this idea, instead of being like, look, we know what needs to happen. We need to do it. It's more like, well, there's not much guidance, so we'll just take advantage of that, and we're just going to kind of push it. It's like, no, that's that's not going to work, you know. I can't imagine being a restaurant that doesn't take the utmost caution. I mean, I, I can't imagine being taking the risk of of spreading anything in that context. Well, you know, I I know I I feel I hate to say it, but I feel exactly what's going to happen is a lot of people are going to. First of all, I think people. I've seen it. I've always been neurotic about food safety myself. And there's unfortunately a lot of restaurants do not treat food safety in the utmost respect. And I would say actually the ones who do it really well are usually the, you know, the bigger corporations and chains. And then sometimes as you go, like when you go into super, super high end kitchens, some of them are like the cleanest. I felt like at Noma, we had a kitchen that you could eat off the floor and it was spotless. But in some of them, they almost overlook food safety because it's like quality kind of supersedes everything. And if, and if you're operating at the highest quality, surely everything's safe. And it's like, so in terms of like now adopting even, even higher standard of food safety and just safety within the operation, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that's going to be the case. And I also think that what's going to happen is you're going to have a lot of people working in food service 
and they're going to they're gonna have been closed for weeks, and then all of a sudden they're going to reopen. People are going to show symptoms within the kitchen. They're going to just kind of like fly it under the radar, send them home. No one's going to quarantine. Because the thing is, if you open your small restaurant, one person shows symptoms and tests positive, are you going to close for another two weeks? No, you're not going to do it. A lot of restaurants are not going to do that. And that's the scary thing. It's going to just kind of like, and then a lot of people will get away with that and some people won't. You what know? would your what would your protocol be if somebody if you if you know somebody's at work and develop symptoms? Do you shut down your kitchen for two weeks? I think what I would do is, and what we have done in New London, and, and not everyone has the luxury to do this. So I think that that's the problem in all this is you have to set up shifts and you have to open slowly. Like in New London, instead of operating in one small kitchen because we can, because it's a tiny town, we're operating in three. Because we're like, if someone gets sick, do we just stop? No, you can't. So if someone gets sick in one kitchen, well, you shut that kitchen down and you open the other kitchens. But what I would do is the idea of having shifts. I mean, first of all, the idea of trying to just open, when they say open, I wouldn't do that. I would say, okay, well, we're going to open slowly. We're going to start with a small group of people, a small team, and then build our way up. And if, yeah, if someone does get sick, you have to quarantine. Like you just have to do it. Like it's just not responsible to not do that. Also too, if you're an employee of that restaurant, I know, I know how cooks are. I know how chefs are. They'll be like, Oh, whatever. Like, it's cool. Like we're just do it. And that's the problem. They'll be like, I'm fine. Like "Mm, you're not fine. And all this, like, you know, the only, the thing that I don't understand is the only protocol people talk about now is like getting your temperature taken. It's like, yeah, but we know you can be asymptomatic. Like you, like it just doesn't matter. Like people are going to be sick. It's going to happen. Like people are going to be sick in the restaurant. So um, I, I think, I mean, I'll be honest. I think a lot of restaurants, they're in no way, shape or form in so many ways, whether it's operationally or the way they're set up physically are not in any way set up to, to take this on. Can you talk to me about the measures of practicality you're taking in your food and making things even more streamlined uh, by maybe giving me an example of some of the recipes and and things you were serving to your students versus some of the ones that you are now that you feel are successful for these times? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, (laughs) I think in most cases, you know, I think the biggest thing that we do usually um, in the food that we serve in normal times that really applies well now is the idea of we follow recipes to a T. We follow recipes to achieve for a variety of reasons, one of which is because we have to, because we have to meet nutritional guidelines, and these recipes are technically supposed to meet very strict nutritional guidelines, therefore we have to follow the recipe. But also, we're working with a staff of people that aren't like, you know, trained to the extent that we're just going to be winging it, and we're also cooking in high volume. So a lot of the food we cook, we follow to the T, we make the recipe, and sure, we do taste it, but quite frankly... We're making it and it comes out the way it should each time because we're following the recipe to a T. That's something that I think is very much lacking in, other, in a lot of restaurants, for example. You're not following a recipe, you're just cooking, you're tasting it. That has worked very well for us now. I feel like most of what we were doing previously transferred over to what we do now. I think the only difference is what food freezes well versus what food doesn't freeze well and making those decisions. But in terms of the way we typically cook, you know, we're cooking high volume, you, you, we're cooking in batches, we're cooking with the same staff. So like, there, there hasn't been too many adjustments in that sense. It's more or less, like I said, like, for example, one thing we did was, you know, we make we do a lot of baking, we'll make like cornbread, we make a big pan of cornbread. And we were like cutting into pieces and freezing it within this meal. And we're like, it's not very nice. 
So now we make individual cornbreads in little containers so people can take the whole cornbread, they can heat it up in the container. So really they've been more qualitative things where we say, you know, like we can do this, it's not going to add any labor, but it will make for a nicer meal when people actually go to reheat it. Um, that's really been the changes we've had to make. But generally the way we cook, it's kind of appropriate for this type of service, you know. Tell me about the Bronx and how it's different from New London and what you've been doing there. It's been a place that's been really hard hit. Yeah. So, I mean, I think speaking about New York in general, because that's kind of the way they've done it. I mean, the way it's, we have to look at it. Because our work in New York is very like, we've worked with them in a variety of ways. And I think it's just that they're, first of all, I think the big thing is they're feeding they're feeding anyone who comes, which I think, again, I, I really commend them on that. That was just the right move. I think what's interesting, in, and I think, again, I want to look at this in a variety of ways, is like New York City opened 400 sites, and they're feeding anyone who comes. Um, and it's this idea that, like, there's a lot of initiatives out there. There's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of feeding. And I think that's great. But I think this also brings to light one of the biggest challenges during times like this which aren't often but just generally feeding people is coordination you know it's a really difficult thing when you have like a school preparing you know x amount of meals and then there's like a couple other initiatives in the area that popped up and they're also providing meals and surely if it's a restaurant the, the meals are probably tastier you know they're probably more interesting than the meals being provided at the school but then you have like a redundancy in people showing up to do it. You have a redundancy in food. You have, so like we saw that pretty early on. I think it's like leveled out a bit where like you're producing meals because you know there's a certain demand. Well, you think you do. And that's always the crapshoot. And that's how it is in the summertime. Like you're producing meals. And it's like you, there's a lot of people in need. You hear about all these people in need. You're producing meals. But where are all the people in need? And it's like coordinating it, getting the word out. Do they know this school is open serving meals? No. Um, this is something that always happens in the summertime. You do, you do summer meals, they're free, and no one's showing up to eat them. And it's like, so it, it, it's frustrating when you hear about like crazy need, but then you see meals that aren't getting served or people not showing up. So I think it's, it's in New York specifically it's very difficult because it's such a big city with so many initiatives happening um ensuring that people know where to go and ensuring the coordination between a variety of organizations who are all trying to do the right thing is a really tough thing to do and i think that's something that should be a real focus moving forward as they looked you know as, as people try to learn from what happened here it's like there needs to be more coordination between people feeding people that's okay. the end of it in the name of that kind of transparency, where are brigade meals being served in New York City? Uh, so brigade, I mean, I never like to call brigade meals brigade meals because all of our meals that we serve are through other school districts. Um, we actually, so the, the work that we do in New York City is twofold, is with their kind of central administration, but also in the Bronx. Um, because of what we do, this is a great example of what I was talking about, because of what we do in the Bronx was this like, they refer to it as kind of a pilot, like scratch cooking pilot, which has been amazing. Um, it's essentially been put on hold um, in the schools that we were operating in. So we continue to work with them, but we also now have taken our chef and put her into a senior center because that was kind of the thing to do. Um, because we felt that she could have been any, like anyone could have done the job that she was doing in New York City. Um, so we felt let's put her in a position where she can actually help an organization 
and the organization that we are working with needed a hand to kind of produce meals. So that's what she's doing. Let's talk about the Encore Community Services, which are the senior communities that you've been making food for. Senior communities um, of, of all kinds have been extremely hard hit by COVID-19. Tell me about feeding that population during this time and what you've learned. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing is, you have a lot of homebound seniors, and now the amount of homebound seniors has increased exponentially because before it was homebound seniors who had some kind of condition. It's like there's a reason they had to be homebound. Now you have a lot of seniors literally just staying at home because it's not safe for them to venture out. So that that amount of people has increased. And the thing that I don't think people understand about homebound meals are those meals literally get delivered directly to people's homes. So in terms of like efficiency and making that happen, it's, it's a lot of work. Like you literally have people taking meals just to one person's home and then going to the next person's home and the next person's home. Um, in terms of the food itself, similarly, it has to be made. It has to be um, put into a state where it can be delivered safely to someone's home. Um, so whether that be frozen or fresh and making that decision. Uh, but in terms of the meals themselves, and this is why we're involved in it, it's very similar in that you're following very strict nutritional guidelines. Um, even in certain cases, you could argue they're more strict on certain things like sodium, for example. And you can go down this rabbit hole where you ultimately end up serving food that you, you're just trying to get it out. You're just trying to put a meal together that meets the guidelines and deliver it. And no one really cares about it because you don't see it again. So um, we're really focused on trying to make those meals as, as quality as possible. And most of the senior centers in New York City, for example, most of the senior centers around the country usually have a good portion of people, seniors coming to the senior center to eat. Now those people are not obviously coming to eat at the senior center. They're all at home. So their, their operation is pretty complicated in that a lot of meals are getting delivered and, and logistically figuring out how to get these meals to where they need to go. Those numbers are increasing and they're continuing to increase at like an alarming level. Like the demand for senior meals right now is extremely high. Um, and you start to see it around the country in terms of like all these agencies are like searching for people to prepare these meals. Um, but the thing is, and that's what we're well positioned to do. And that's why it made sense for our chef to go there just to encore is that she's very well versed in nutritional guidelines. You need someone who can just produce meals that fits these guidelines because ultimately like the National School Lunch Program, these meals are getting reimbursed by the government. So you, you have to follow guidelines. They're not just random meals. In terms of, of more guidelines, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and Congresswoman Ilhan Omar put uh, a piece of legislation together um, last October. It's called the Universal School Meals Program Act. Um, it's been sitting in committee since October. The last che time I checked on it, it's been read twice, which is yeah. just a, a blazing accomplishment for, for Congress. Great job. Why is it important that this thing passes or at least is taken seriously? Well, it's huge. So I think it's important that people do understand in a lot of places, kids do eat for free. So the way it works is based on your income or your, that, that your household income. You can, as a student, you can qualify for reduced price meals. You can qualify for free meals or you have to pay for your meal. Um, when you have, when you have the situation where kids are paying for meals and where kids are getting free meals, it creates a lot of issues on both sides, both for the students and for the food service program. So for the food service program, it becomes difficult because if a lot of the kids have to pay for the meals, they're probably not going to pay for the meals. They're probably just going to bring their meals or not eat at all. 
which decreases any kind of revenue that these food service programs are getting, which make it very difficult to manage a program, to pay people. So then all of a sudden you get into this limbo area where like they don't have enough money to produce the food, so the quality of food goes down and so on. On the other side of the coin, uh, kids who don't qualify for free and reduced meals, um, for example, to qualify for a free meal in the United States, you have to have your the household income has to be 130% of the uh, poverty rate, which is nothing. Poverty rate is super low. Um, so there's a lot of kids who come from families that they don't qualify for free meals, but they need free meals. So then there's a good chance they're not eating. Um, there's a lot of kids in schools who qualify for free meals, but choose not to eat them because of the stigma, because there are a lot of schools where the only kids who are going to eat the school food are the kids who have to eat it. Um, so universal free meals just kind of takes care of that. Um, New York City has adopted this. There is a provision currently in the National School Lunch Program which allows you to opt into this, but it usually requires that the school district or or municipality is paying money to do this. And a lot of school districts don't have the ability to do that. That that act is also proposing to raise, this is another huge part of it, it's also promoting to raise the reimbursement rate, which goes to each meal, which is huge, because the reimbursement rates as they are now uh, are not enough money to really cover the cost to make food good. It's like, just do the right thing. Feed the kids, man. It's a no, honestly, it's a great, it's a great piece of legislation and it would really, really be pretty amazing if they passed it. It would, it would, it would help more than I think people understand. You know, in their bill, it says that the, the kids have to come from homes that are 185% below the poverty line. And well, re- yes. regardless of how you frame it, 130% or 185%, I mean... It's basically saying you have to be homeless to get a free meal in school. And there's all kinds of poor that comes behind, it comes before being on the streets. Right. Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty dire. Yeah, the distinction is 185% is like for reduced price, 130 is for free. And regardless, like you said, it's like... But even that's confusing. It should just be like, so feed the kids who don't have money. Well, you know I mean? and, and that's the thing that we feed have. all the kids. Well, too, and you talk about not having really any money to do this in the first place. So having three dollars and forty-one cents to make school lunch to do this, and like to do all the like applications. You're, you're sending applications home. You have to get the applications. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It creates a lot of issues. It's uncomfortable for people. So the universal school meal thing too takes away all these applications that just goes away there's none of this paperwork there's none of this kind of like very invasive thing where you're sending home applications and asking people their income and to prove their income i mean it just makes so much sense i do wonder uh, because the bill was introduced in in october if there should be provisions added for times of national disaster like now just to yes. clarify the path for I don't know, future pandemics or, or yeah. whenever the country shuts down again. Well, that's a great point, Howie. And I, something, de- and, and I would assume, I don't want to assume, but I would assume that at the very least the USDA is saying like, okay, well, when this happens again, the current thing we put in place right now, it did the trick, but it's not the end all. But yeah, I think that's, there needs to be a lot of discussion about when things like this happen, because um, especially if this kind of thing happens next year. I mean, hopefully we'll be more prepared for it. 
Well, I'm glad there's people like you who who know how to prepare and know how to run a kitchen and are action and detail oriented. Um, our show is called Takeaway Only. I'm wondering what your big takeaway is from being on the front lines of feeding kids and feeding seniors during this time. Um, I think it's that the people who do this work all throughout the year, um, this is what they do always. I think uh, a lot of food service folks who typically don't do this type of work have gotten involved in it, whether they work in restaurants or whatever it may be, they've got their hand in it. And I think what people don't realize is that people who are working on the front lines in food service now, during this dire time, feeding people who are in absolute need is literally what they do all year round. And I think if you talk to them, a lot of them won't look at what they're doing now as tremendously different from what they usually do because it's literally the way their mind works. They know they're feeding people who need it and that's why they do it. They don't get the respect for it. Um, but it's, it's, it's come to my attention that like people think it's something different. And, and when you talk to these folks, this is just what they do. They know that these kids need food and that's why they show up. It might not look like it because the food they serve is very simple. And sometimes it's not amazing, and that's usually not their fault at all. Um, but this is what they do, and it's pretty amazing because um, we didn't really see anyone, and, and to my knowledge, wherever we worked, people are like, well, this is what we do. Like, the kids need food. They needed food before, and they still need food now, and we're going to show up, and we're going to provide it. So I, I always had a tremendous amount of respect for these folks, especially once I got into this space because I saw how difficult it was. Um, but now more so than ever because they're still doing it. This whole thing is going to end and people are going to go back to work and they're going to still be doing it. It's not going to stop. You know, restaurants will reopen. All the people who started helping feeding, they're going to go back to their normal jobs. These people will continue doing that work. So I've never had more respect for them because I, I just feel like no matter what they do, they'll never receive the credit they deserve. Um, but they're not looking for that. They're just yeah. doing the work. And just to put a number on that, I mean, we're talking about all the kids in, in the country who go to public school, but, you know, the, the kids who, who need this legislation, as is cited in the bill, um, who get, uh, you know, a discount or a free school lunch, it's 29 million kids. It's a lot. It's a lot of kids. A lot of kids. All right. Well, thank you for being there for the kids. Thank you for being on the show. Um, thank you, Howard. The Brigade's amazing. It's been great to watch it grow, and I'm excited to watch it grow more and make even more of an impact. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Howie. That was Dan Juicy. You can follow Brigade on Instagram at Brigade, and you can follow Dan at dan.juicy. Thank you so much for listening. Takeaway Only is produced by Casey Kahn, Rob Corso, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Our logo is by Reynald Philippe at Beepholes. Music by John Palmer. Special thanks to Kristen Millar, Antoine Ricardou, Raphael Weil, and to the whole team at Welcome. Check out their important community-building work at welcomeconference.org. We're back tomorrow. This is Takeaway Only.